for Palestine Studies at Columbia. Um, I'm just chairing here a conversation that thinks comparatively about systemic racism, security apparatuses, and the militarization of policing in Israel and the US. The decision to hold this session was inspired by the mass demonstrations that have unfolded in the US over the past month and a half, sparked by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th. Analyses of the Israelification of US security and military strategies, especially in the aftermath of 9-11, and of the militarization of the police in American cities are far from new. Nevertheless, this seems like a good moment to revisit those conversations and to place them in the broader context of the past and presence of Israeli and American settler nationhood and the settler nationhoods and the particular forms of racialization and violence that is structured and continues to structure each. It's worth noting at the outset that to think about racialized policing in particular requires some specificity with respect to Israel and Palestine. It is but one manifestation of Israeli state violence against Palestinians and one that is perhaps isn't quite the right framework for thinking about Palestinians living in Gaza or the West Bank, for instance. And of course, racialized violence is hardly limited to policing in the context of the US or US state power, as the US continues to wage war over an increasingly expansive the globe. As you will see much of the discussion today with respect to Israeli policing, focuses on the Palestinian citizens of the Israeli state, there's a much broader conversation to be had about policing in relation to occupation, invasions, sieges, and more generally war. But that is perhaps beyond the remit of today's panel. So I will begin by introducing each speaker in the order in which they will speak. Each will speak for about 15 minutes, after which we'll allow panelists to comment on each other's presentations, and then we'll open up for a Q&A. Uh, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of the Zoom to submit your questions. So let me begin by introducing the speakers. Nahla Abdo will go first. Dr. Abdo is a critical race feminist, political activist, and professor of sociology at Carleton University. She's an active member of F4P, active with the Independent Jewish Voices, and with Students Against Israeli Apartheid. She has extensive publications. The most recent include An Oral History of the Palestinian Nakba with Noor Masalha, Captive Revolution, Palestinian Women's Anti-Colonial Struggle, which was published in 2014, and Women in Israel, Race, Gender, and Citizenship, published in 2011. She has also published a large number of articles and book chapters on issues of race, settler colonialism, indigeneity, and she is currently working on settler colonialism and indigenousness, comparing Canada and Israel. Our second speaker today is Joanna Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez is the, is, uh, teaches 20th century U.S. history and the history of social movements in the Department of History at Baruch College, uh, College of the CUNY System. She is the author of The Young Lords, A Radical History, published in 2020, which is a history of the Puerto Rican counterpart of the Black Panther movement. Dr. Fernandez's recent research and litigation has unearthed a trove of primary documents now available to scholars and members of the public. Her freedom of information law lawsuit against the New York Police Department led to the recovery of the so-called lost or supposedly lost handshoe files, which are over a million surveillance files of New Yorkers compiled by the NYPD between 1954 and 1972, including those of Malcolm X. She is also the editor of Writing on the Wall, selected prison writings of Mumia Abu Jamal, with, with whom she also co-edited a special issue of the, of the journal Socialism and Democracy. Professor Fernandez has also written and produced films, as well as designed museum exhibitions. And she writes 
for publications such as Al Jazeera and the Huffington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And finally, I would like to welcome Maha Nassar. Dr. Nassar is an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. She received her PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from the University of Chicago and specializes in the cultural and intellectual history of the modern Arab world. She's the, uh, uh, sorry, she's the author of numerous scholarly articles that have appeared in the Journal of Palestine Studies, Arab Studies Journal, and the Middle Eastern Journal of Culture and Communication. She is also the author of the book, Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World, which won the 2018 Palestine Book Award. Dr. Nassar's current project examines how Palestinians have constructed and maintained their sense of peoplehood across the globe. And finally, Dr. Nassar is a 2018 Public Voices Fellow with the op-ed project and a policy member of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. Her analysis and opinion pieces have appeared in numerous US-based publications, including the Washington Post, The Forward, and The Hill. So I'd like to welcome everyone today, and I now turn uh, the platform over, it's not the table, the platform over to Dr. Abdul. Thank you. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you, Laura, and the organizers of this uh, webinar. Uh, let me begin with an acknowledgement that I am currently sitting on indigenous Algonquin land. I think that the most relevant analogy between the US and Israel lies in the principal rationale for their establishment as settler colonial states. Imperialism, which is the driving force of the settler colonial project, is inherently racist and racializing. With the establishment of the state, racialized capital becomes structural and institutional. It becomes systemic. Yet, the disanalogies are very much there, and they reside in the fact that each case is historically specific. Without going into much details, it is essential to point out that the very establishment of the settler colonial state, whether the US or Canada or Israel, to name just a few, necessitated the elimination of the indigenous people. In the case of both the US and Canada, settler colonialism began with the removal of the indigenous people a process which involved genocide, erasure, and conquering of indigenous lands by white European settlers. In the process, the vast areas stolen from their indigenous owners necessitated vast amounts of labor power, cheap working hands. Hence the establishment of African peoples, sorry, hence the enslavement of African peoples and their use as slave labor, therefore, while elimination, erasure, and genocide enabled the establishment of the colonial state, slavery generated, reproduced, and ensured the growth of U.S. imperialism. The U.S. brought Africans as slaves, shackled as chattel. Many were killed in the process, and the rest sold in bondage. Their racialization continued for hundreds of years until this day. Racializing African-Americans and others is an ongoing process. The Jim Crow law, separate but equal, and the 13th Amendment, despite their uh, legal abolition, remain with us today in the form of the prison industrial complex that is overpopulated by Black and other racialized populations. 
The state might change or abolish laws, but the latter's ramifications and spirit stay with us. To put it differently, the systemic nature of race and racialization is not likely to disappear with changes in the judicial system. To be uh, to the previous laws, actually a recent one, a new one, the three strikes law has been added. So racialization seeps deep into the white supremacist mentality of the settler colonizer. The settler colonizer might want to see itself and be seen by others as democratic, as free, etc. But it ignores that its racialized creation will always be there as long as it is, namely the settler colonial system remains alive. Capitalist colonial racism, as Ashili Mbambi, an advocate of Palestinian rights, says, is like a virus. It mutates and spreads. Zionism is one such virus. It is different from the white European settler colonial project, not because it is not white and European in origin, nor because it is not settler colonial. Zionist settler colonialism is different because it uses, used and uses a particular ideology, namely Jewishness, as a deception and political shield for its colonial project. No one can take away from the calamities of the Holocaust perpetrated by the Europeans, but this should by no means lead to using the Holocaust as a justification for eliminating and disappearing the Palestinian people. This should not justify Zionist use of brute force in forcefully expelling over 75% of the Palestinian people from their homes, lands, and historic and cultural space. From the outset, the Zionist colonial project, which aimed at erasing indigenous Palestinians and replacing them with Jews from all over the world, was working towards a larger goal, hiding behind the European atrocities against Jews, making Jewishness akin to Zionism and akin to the need for a Jewish state in Palestine. Equating Zionism with Jewishness, shored up lately by the law of the Jewish nation state, a further attempt at conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism and with the legitimate criticism of Israel. Going back to analogies, the spirit of the Jim Crow law, the perverted reality of separate but equal or more correctly separate and oppressed did not disappear when legally abolished. As Michelle Alexander argues, it is still with us and is crystallized in the prison industrial complex, to use Angela Davis' words. Similar perverted and racialized policies and practices have been implemented by Israel from day one. The very few Palestinians left on the land after the 1948 Nakba were placed under military rule until 1966, forbidden to leave their village or town without a permit from the Israeli military governor, Al-Hakim Al-Askari. This, known by the Israelis as the Arab sector, has been and remains largely excluded from the mainstream Israeli economy. It is de-developed, underfunded, with high rates of poverty, unemployment, 
poor health conditions, poor access to education and social services. Since 1967, Israel issued 65 racist laws discriminating against Palestinian citizens and Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territories. Since then, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been detained for political reasons. Mass incarceration of the racialized and colonized is an important point of comparison between the two states. In both cases, incarceration itself is a political act in the service of state securitization. We need to remember that both states are police states and militarized states. They both can go invade bomb countries and kill people while the world is watching. No one can do much. In the US, the privatization of prisons turned incarceration into a profitable source of surplus value or profit. Incarcerated masses of black and racialized populations are used as slave labor. In Israel, Palestinian political prisoners are basically abducted from the occupied territories and brought by Israeli military into Israeli prisons as further means of oppression, control, and disappearing. The equation goes like that. Blacks and racialized communities generate U.S. capital, and the latter is given in the form of three to four billion dollars gifts yearly to Israel, while Israel in turn safeguards U.S. imperialist interests in the Middle East. Racially Racial disparity in Palestinian deaths, especially in the occupied Palestinian territories, disparity in their poverty, in their reception of social education and health services throughout Palestine, Israel, along with that of their mass incarceration, to name just a few, are comparable, if not analogous, to such disparities, characteristics of the racial divide in the U.S and the Canadian settler colonial regimes. Apartheid, which characterizes Israel's exclusionary policies of indigenous Palestinians, has become much clearer since 1967 occupation and its brutal treatment of the Palestinians in these territories. We are aware of the extent of the strangulation of the Palestinians in the occupied territories, especially in the air, land, and sea besieged Gaza Strip. This situation is what led apartheid experts, Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu, to declare Israeli apartheid as a much worse kind than that of South Africa. For whereas apartheid South Africa followed the logic of inclusion and exploitation, Israel, which always sought the disappearing of the Palestinians, utilized the logic of exclusion, oppression, and exploitation only when needed. From the inception of the state, white European Jewish settlers realized they could not form the state, build the military, the economy, the country, and work the land by themselves. They also realized they could not disappear the Palestinians without replacing them with immigrants to settle the land and provide cheap labor power. Hence, Israel's policies in the 50s and 60s of importing hundreds of thousands of Mizrahi Arab Jews. In Women in Israel, I highlight 
the oppressive and racialized treatment of this community and describe the terrible living conditions they were placed under for several decades. We need a special discussion actually on Israeli racialization of African and Arab Mizrahi Jews. Suffice it here to say that Zionism is a racist and racializing project and antithetical to non-white European Jews. Zionism and the Israeli state, I argue, are being exposed today with the rise of anti-Zionist movements, groups like JVP and IJV, the global rally against racism, not in my name and so on. The global solidarity with Black Lives Matter is currently lending credence to the Palestinian solidarity as well. To re-emphasize, I say Palestinians in Israel and in the OPT are colonized, racialized, and oppressed. Moreover, racial inequality is characteristic of the Israeli society, even among Jews. And not all diaspora Jewish, uh, Jews support Zionism. Zionism, declared a form of racism by the UN, is part of the global force of oppression. To conclude, it is true settler colonialism, oppression, race and racialization are historically specific, but they also are universal traits. Historical specificity should not be taken to mean uniqueness. It should not blur people's potential, their agency and struggle. The different forms of oppression are the product of globalized racial capital and settler colonialism. Structures of oppression, including state capital and power, work in tandem. Their dismantlement, their dismantlement, therefore, can only be possible and successful when fought globally, in tandem, and not just individually and locally. The success of the Palestinian fight against Israeli settler colonialism, against the military police state, is more possible when fought as part of the global struggle against racism, oppression, and settler colonialism. Solidarity between African Americans in the form of black liberation struggle in the US, especially Black Panther, and the Palestinian liberation movement in the 60s and 70s reverberates today in the global rally against racism, which along with the global campaign of the BDS and the endorsements of high profile people from South Africa to Mozambique to Kenya, to the various movements in North Africa and Europe. This is a true global call for resistance to existing global forces of oppression. We Palestinians join our voices to those of indigenous peoples and black peoples in demanding justice globally. In the militarized settler colonial state of Israel, every living Palestinian in the occupied Palestinian territory is a potential George Floyd. As the killing of George Floyd has awakened the world, this awakening must also be extended into the Palestinians' need to breathe. Thank you very much. Sorry, I muted. Thank you so much. Um, I will now pass the platform to our next speaker, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you so very much for inviting me to join this very important and urgent conversation. My remarks today are based on an article published uh, in Decolonization 
Indigeneity, Education and Society, the journal, uh, which I wrote in 2017. It's called Structures of Settler Colonial Domination in Israel and the United States. And um, this was the uh, product in part of a trip uh, that I participated in uh, to Palestine from the United States in March 2016. It was the first U.S. delegation that included former Black Panthers um, and U.S. held political prisoners. It was one of the first delegations to amplify the issue of uh, policing and uh, the common incarceration of Palestinians and uh, African-Americans and other internally colonized people in the United States. Um, so I think that we're all in the same um, thinking in similar terms. Uh, like Professor Abdo, uh, I think that we can't really talk about policing in Israel or the United States without understanding the racialized character um, of these countries. Um, and the policing uh, uh, in its DNA is, um, is racialized and supremacist. And in fact, I think that there is a lot more in common with the structures of oppression and racialization in uh, the United States and Israel than meets the eye. I think it's important for us to say that Israel rehearsed, studied, and paid attention to um, the settler colonial project that preceded it in 1948. And that was uh, the settler colonial project um, of the United States. However, I think it's important to say that even though there are similarities in the uh, American and Israeli example, the suffering imposed on Palestinians is concentrated and acute, a consequence of the state of war and Israeli military occupation that defines the lives of uh, Palestinians. Uh, but still, in visiting Palestine, those of us who were present, many of whom are students of American history, I teach uh, 20th century U.S. history, and um, the massive land displacement of uh, Native Americans in the 19th century, we were struck by all of the similarities. Uh, and that's part of what I'd like to talk today. And there will be some overlap uh, with Dr. Abdo's remarks, but I'm going to offer some specificity. Um, so, the appropriation of indigenous land and the enslavement of Africans formed the foundation of the settler colonial project in the United States. In the context of indigenous resistance and slave rebellion, that's what we're never told here in the United States, that there wasn't only an appropriation violently of indigenous land, there was also rebellion, which is where um, the need to police comes in. And policing in the early uh, 
colony of the United States demanded gun ownership on the part of the citizens of that emerging state. So gun ownership became compulsory in the colonies and later in the early Republic because indigenous people were fighting back and slaves were organizing um, insurrections. Uh, so the history of um, the Second Amendment that we associate with the Constitution uh, is not a radical right bequeathed uh, by the Constitution, but in fact, it was essential to securing the borders and integrity of the nascent American state. This is important because we're gonna see the same exact thing ongoing in Israel, which is that uh, Jewish settlers and other um, members of Israeli society are deputized. Uh, that is the strategy that the early American uh, Republic had to use in order to secure and define its emerging borders. Um, and let me give you a sense of what that looked like. Virginia forbade any man to travel unless he was well armed. This is in the early um, period. Uh, another law a year later required men to take arms with them to work and to attend church or be fined. Uh, 1658 is the year that we're talking about. Um, that year ordered every settler home to have a functioning firearm and later even provided government loans for those who could not afford to buy a weapon. Um, and these existing uh, groups of armed citizens uh, were then transformed into slave patrols when slavery was extended. Uh, in uh, the United States, especially in the 19th century. Uh, and white citizens were also compelled by law to serve in these units, essentially to apprehend slaves um, who had escaped and to return them to the plantation. Um, it, they were also organized, these slave patrols, to put down slave rebellions. And just to give you a sense of the racialized character of the police in the United States, a law in North Carolina established that upon um, apprehending a slave, the slave patrol could beat the slave 15 times. And if the slave rebelled, then you were allowed to beat the slave 30 times, but only 30 times because slaves were property and very valuable and you didn't want to kill the slave. You wanted to return him or her safely to that to the plantation. This tells us that the violent containment, mass displacement, and genocide of Native Americans and the enslaved Africans um, is part of the DNA of the culture of the country um, of policing uh, and social control. Um, and it's the structure that undergirds uh, white supremacy. Um, I just reported on this today because lest you think that this is something of the past, just this week or last week, the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which we know as ICE, um, which 
is in the business of deporting immigrants, has created the Enforcement and Removal Operations Chicago Citizens Academy for the first time in Chicago. The Academy is a six-week program modeled after similar trainings held by other law enforcement agencies. And essentially ICE is pulling together 10 to 12 participants for training, citizens. Um, and that's set to happen in September. So this deputizing of citizens, disproportionately white citizens, to carry out the business of um, the state is integral, necessary, in fact, to the state, um, to the settler colonial project. Um, and we see this happening in Israel uh, and in uh, the and in uh, the West Bank all the time with the Jewish set, Jewish settlers who are essentially deputized uh, to hold down any resistance to um, their uh, acquisition of land because ultimately the acquisition of land is um, at the base of this project. Um, what is happening in, uh, in, in Israel, uh, I think? What are the uh, comparisons? Uh, there's a lot of talk about the occupation, but we know that the original sin in, um, in Palestine dates back to the Nakba, 1948, when 85% of Palestinians were violently driven out of their lands to neighboring Arab countries, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Those Palestinians who remained in uh, the, the area that was colonized, settled uh, by an emerging Israel, um, remained internally displaced in their own land, confined to its poorest regions, forbidden from moving freely, stripped of land rights, and subjected to a brutal system of racial apartheid. Um, social control and military rule was the object of this project from 1948 to 1966. And ultimately, um, that sounds like uh, South African apartheid, but it also sounds a lot like reservations and also the ghettoization of uh, African Americans in urban centers. At core, what is necessary um, is expansion and more land uh, acquired by uh, the settler colonial project. Um, so I just want to um, say that uh, when we were in in um, when we were in forty eight, uh, which is what fascinatingly enough, Palestinians call the territories acquired by Israel in 1948, when 85% of the indigenous Palestinian people were displaced. Um, uh, the ongoing land displacement in that area and the acquisition of, of, of lands in the, uh, in the, um, uh, to the West, looked a lot like what happened here uh, to indigenous people um, in the United States. Um, so essentially, we've heard most recently that uh, 
President Trump gave a speech at Mount Rushmore. Uh, part of what happens in the 19th century in the United States is that the territories that the United States acquired that belonged to Native Americans under treaty uh, were acquired under the guise of land preservation. Uh, and this is essentially the same logic of that wall that keeps on swallowing uh, Palestinian lands. Uh, essentially, uh, Israel calls the project uh, of acquiring more of these lands that belong to Palestinians now, um, they, 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 it's under the Nature and Parks Authority. And this Nature and Parks Authority routinely confiscates lands tilled by Palestinians. Um, and essentially it gives them notice of intent to acquire these lands um, for public purposes. Um, and the ongoing construction of the 280 mile apartheid wall in the West Bank is strategically designed to cease to seize Palestinian residential and agricultural lands in its path. Um, again, under the guise of building parks, this was the strategy in fact used by the United States to acquire and displace and justify um, the acquisition of Native American lands under the law known as the Homestead Act of uh, 1852, which essentially gave land grants to settler farmers, Europeans, but also the railroads. Um, what we also see happening, because ultimately land acquisition is foundational to the settler colonial project and it must continuously expand, um, the modern rendition of that is gentrification. And what we saw in Palestine uh, was a project of gentrification in port cities like Jaffa, which is the oldest uh, port city in the world. The gentrification projects of Palestinian lands there looked exactly like gentrification projects in style, aesthetic, and character. Uh, to the ones in Brooklyn and the South Bronx, um, and now Flushing, Queens. So land acquisition is critical. And if you're going to acquire land, people are going to fight back from the beginning to now. What is fascinating about the control of the settler colonial project is that it needs to render an ideology that justifies its mission. So what happens both in the United States and in Israel is that the resistance of those who've been colonized and displaced is identified as terrorism. And the actions of the colonizer that deploys structural terror is known as security. So this is the language that defines the ways in which the state uh, interfaces um, with the, the displaced, the racialized, um, and the oppressed. They are the terrorists, and we are the people who uphold law and order uh, and security. And it's this logic 
that justifies the rampant wholesale mass genocide in the streets by police, both in the United States uh, and in Israel. Unless you think that this term terrorism is one that emerges with um, Israel. In fact, the term, um, the term, uh, what is it called? It's uh, counterinsurgency. The term counterinsurgency doesn't emerge in the 20th century. It actually emerges with the need of the emerging American state to continuously um, kill the Native American people. Um, in early, in the 1600s, um, the term that I'm looking for that you might, uh, uh, that you might help me out with, um, it's one that is connected to savage war, uh, the policy of savage war, uh, which is that if we're gonna take over people's lands, we're going to have to perpetually fight those people because they're going to fight back. So we're gonna have to target civilians, women, and children. And to do that, we have to organize the population because this is required to consolidate um, the state. Counterinsurgency, low intensity war, which is used in, um, in Israel. Uh, and apparently Israel is now training American police in counter in, in insurgency and low intensity war. Well, that is the logic and language and policy that developed in um, the early uh, colonies here in the United States to keep down um, the uh, Native American people. I know that I'm probably running out of time, but the problem with uh, Israel and the Palestinians is that Palestinians are not integral to the Israeli economy. Uh, Palestinians outside of 48 constitute 2% of the labor force, much like Native Americans here. Native Americans are not at all integral to the economy um, of the United States. That's why they were able to be warehoused in reservations. And that's why there's an ongoing uh, project of genocide. African Americans, however, are different. They were integral to the project of capitalism because they produced the second wealthiest society humanity had ever seen, second only to the British Empire, the four million slaves in the South upon which capitalism um, was built, and they later eventually became part of the working class. The Native American example is the one that most approximates that of Palestinians. Um, and this is why there are open air uh, prisons in, uh, in Gaza and the West Bank, because it's a population that in fact needs to be eviscerated because it's growing uh, demographic threatens the existence of, um, of Israel, much like the potentially growing demographic of Native Americans in the Western territories threatened the existence of the United States. That's why they had to be eviscerated, Native Americans, completely, and put in reservations. The other 
major issue that we see in the settler colonial project is the evisceration of culture, language, and history. Why? Because this brings people together and gives them a sense of um, their power and offers the possibility for resistance. So what the settler colonial project does is that it erases um, those people. When we were in 48 in Israel, we learned that the term Palestinian in the schools in 48 does not exist. The words used to describe Palestinians is Arab persons or other people. So this is critical. This evisceration and uh, dehumanization is critical to the project. In Puerto Rico, a colonized country by the United States, um, the language that was uh, the official language when the United States colonized it was English that was imposed on uh, schools. Um, but also, you want to curb cultural practices. So the Puerto Rican flag was made illegal in Puerto Rico um, in 1947. And Puerto Ricans couldn't sing songs that identified them with, um, with, uh, uh, with a, a liberation struggle. Much like when we were there in, uh, in, in 48, Israel had just declared that Palestinian caps, taxi drivers could not play Palestinian songs in East Jerusalem. Um, so this is crit another critical component. The other component, of course, is uh, the dehumanization and finally criminalization. Um, like the United States, uh, Palestine is one of the greatest um, incarcerators. It's essentially prison nation, the greatest prison nation of the world. One in five Palestinian people have been imprisoned um, by the Israeli state. In the United States, we, we see the same situation. We represent 5% of the world's population, but have 25% of um, uh, the world's prisoners. Um, in this context, um, the oppressor, uh, given its blatant attempt at controlling uh, the population, has to ideologically um, gain credence uh, around the world. So Israel touts itself as a nation of laws. America calls itself the land of the free. Um, that incarceration that is integral to both these uh, projects is about controlling those populations and ensuring that um, the displaced um, are not ever going to fight back. Alongside incarceration, you have a mass imprisonment of political prisoners. So since 1967, uh, Israel has imprisoned 800,000 uh, political prisoners. In the United States, we see a similar process happening. There are dozens, uh, many of whom have been imprisoned, dozens of formerly colonized people who were fighting back in the 60s, Puerto Ricans, Native Americans, Black Americans, um, even Asians, who um, were imprisoned in um, 
the 60s and given harsh sentences for their um for breaking the commandments of this country which is that they were standing their ground and fighting uh empire and sending a message for others um to follow so i'm going to conclude my remarks there um and say that um we can't really understand policing and its racialized character and genocidal character if we do not understand the ways in which the settler colonial project doesn't only uh, rely on uh, the state to contain um, the populations whose lands it must usurp, it also has to uh, rely upon its citizens uh, to do that job. And these states, therefore, because uh, Israeli supremacy or Zionist supremacy or white supremacy here is integral to their DNA, um, even as they build their, um, their societies uh, and their citizens, uh, that logic is on fleek when the state is afforded um, the job of eliminating people. These states cannot be reformed. Um, they have to um, be brought down. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Johanna. Um, before I turn to Maha, the last speaker, I just want to remind everyone to post their questions on the Q&A uh, function at the bottom of your screen, um, and we will get to them uh, in a little bit. Maha, you have the floor. All right. Uh, thank you, Nadia, and to uh, Laura and all the organizers for today's panel. Uh, I'm coming to you today from Tucson, Arizona, the site of stolen lands of the Thonautha Nation and the Pascoyaki tribe. Uh, my co-panelists have talked uh, uh, in very great detail and, and really sort of powerfully about the structures of settler colonialism and racialization in the United States and Israel, and particularly the historical context that informed those uh, structures. So I wanted to spend my time today talking a little bit more about current conditions and in particular how they affect uh, more specifically Palestinians from 48, also known as Palestinian citizens of Israel, and then also draw some parallels and think about where we are now and maybe um, start opening the conversation about where we can go in the future. So to begin with, I want to start with a story <clears throat> that happened almost exactly one year ago. So on July 5th, 2019, a woman by the name of Da'at Saadi, who's a 48 Palestinian resident in Lid, she went to the Ramat Ashkol neighborhood in Lid to pick up her friend and her friend's daughter from preschool in her car. Da'at noticed an unmarked car was following her and started to feel afraid. She parked the car uh, to wait for her friend. And then here's how she described what happened next. She says, quote, Two plain-clothed men got out of their car and came over and told me they were from the police. They accused me of parking illegally and started screaming at me and tried to arrest me. I asked them for a female officer to be present. After a bit, the policeman came back without a policewoman and the situation devolved from there to the point that I started to be hit by them. So I started to scream and to cry. They broke my hand, pulled off my hijab off my head, 
and smashed a necklace that was around my neck, unquote. Uh, Dot was handcuffed. She was arrested and she was taken to the local police station. She was held there and interrogated for over four hours. She was released without getting a parking ticket, though they did add a new charge that she allegedly hit one of the officers. Dot asked them to transfer her to the hospital, which they refused to do. Upon her release, she immediately went to the hospital to get treatment for her broken hand. Now, a witness had filmed this police assault on Dot, though the witness didn't come anywhere near the police or try to intervene, fearing for their own safety. The footage was subsequently circulated on social media, leading to outrage among 48 Palestinians. A few days later, on July 10th, 2019, a protest was held outside the uh, court and uh, the protesters were denouncing police brutality. One of those protest leaders, a woman by the name of Fida Ishada, was a member of the Lid municipality. And she told reporters, quote, the protest came after the assault on Da'a, but every day we see and hear about another attack and about another incident of racist treatment by the police against Arab citizens, unquote. So I wanted to start with this story because I think it points all too well to many of the analogies that have been brought up already here. And also to bring it back down to the ground where, actual, where it actually affects people, particularly this particular case of Dot Saadi, but also we can think about all of the people who heard of the incident, all of the people who witnessed it on social media, all the people who came out in protest and all the people who denounced it. I think it's also very telling the fact that um, I came across this on social media that because it was being circulated by 48 Palestinians. And it's only in the, it was only circulating in the Arabic uh, news media and on Arabic Facebook. There was um, no awareness of it as far as I could tell in the United States. I wrote about it a bit last year, but it didn't really pick up much traction. Um, and so one of the things that I wanna think about is that even as we're analyzing these parallel structures, of settler colonialism, police violence, and state racism. I think it's also important that we also keep in mind that the victims themselves also circulate globally and are very intertwined as well. I wanna also think about it in terms of the use of police violence and the parallels between them. The story that I just said with a few changes to names and dates and locations could very easily be a story that comes out of the United States. The use of police violence with impunity, the lack of accountability, the adding on of charges, the, and really just the disregard for the humanity of the victim, the racial profiling and the surveillance, the presumption of guilt, police following her around, the suspicion around her because she seemed to be, quote unquote, in the wrong neighborhood. These are all part of larger structures of police uh, surveillance and of state surveillance. And I'll come back to the idea of surveillance in a little bit. I think this story also reminds us of the larger structures of systemic and racialized oppression that my panelists have already discussed. So far beyond looking at that specific story, we can also understand the, all the various and myriad ways in which 48 Palestinians are disproportionately targeted and also often disproportionately neglected by the state, which leads to socioeconomic disparities that then translate into social ills that are then used to justify racist views of Palestinians as culturally inferior, prone to violence and other nefarious activities, and therefore undeserving of the extension of basic civil and human rights. 
to talk just a little bit about what some of these uh, socioeconomic disparities and structural inequities are um, and how they manifest in our current uh, reality. Uh, we've already heard about the ways in which Israeli settler colonialism and uh, state racism has uh, led to economic disparities and structural disparities in terms of excluding Palestinians from the workforce, etc. And so what that means is that today, 1948 Palestinians are concentrated in blue collar jobs, even when they have higher levels of education. They're more likely to be laid off first in the case of an economic downturn. And there's also a great deal of underdevelopment in the Palestinian sector through the confiscation of land in particular, which not only impedes agricultural development, but also deprives Palestinians of land that could be developed for non-agricultural uses in terms of businesses, manufacturing, et cetera. Palestinian municipalities are also excluded from high priority areas, also known as development zones. Those development zones are often granted subsidies and tax breaks or given favorable grants and loans by the government. Now notice I'm talking about the Palestinian sector and Palestinian municipalities, and that's because housing municipalities are largely segregated in Israel. There are a few so-called mixed towns, but for the most part, we have a separate and unequal system in, inside the Green Line, inside um, what's known as Israel today. That separate and unequal structure also extends to schooling. The schools are largely segregated as well. We have what are called what they call Arab schools and Hebrew schools based on the primary language of instruction. Most Palestinian students are concentrated in those so-called Arab schools, which are under-resourced. Arab students are allocated on average 75% of the budget that's allocated to Jewish students. This underfunding results in large class sizes, poor infrastructure and facilities, shortage of classrooms. It also leads to higher school dropout rates and lower university admission test scores, particularly in those poorer communities, which then reinforce the cycle of unemployment and concentrated labor at the lower rungs of the economy. This disinvestment in Palestinian sectors, as well as the lack of resources and, and employment opportunities, unsurprisingly, leads to higher crime rates with an influx of drugs, guns, and gangs into Palestinian communities. This year in particular, 2020, has seen a frightening rise in homicide rates among 48 Palestinians, only a fraction of which are investigated. So all of this ties into larger cultural dynamics as well. Professor Fernandez talked about the elimination of the native, the evisceration of their identity, and we very much see this um, for the, in terms of 48 Palestinians as well. Israeli school children are, are constantly given a message that Arabs are inherently violent, that they don't have a culture or a society that's worth taking pride in. And even Arab students, Palestinian students in those Arab schools are likewise deprived of uh, a curriculum that can really help them understand, an official curriculum that can really help them understand uh, and take pride in their culture, their heritage, their language, uh, and their identity. There are supplementary um, uh, curricula that are also introduced by Arab civil society, by Palestinian civil society, that helps ameliorate some of these imbalances and helps Palestinians inside the Green Line take pride in their culture, identity, and heritage and history. But those alternative curricula are not extended to Israeli students and therefore the racist images that they're introduced to continue to perpetuate 
long after they graduate. But this alternative curricula also speaks to a larger dynamic that I think we also have to really emphasize, which is the agency and the resistance of the Palestinians in the Green Line in their valiant efforts, I would say, to um, resist and push back against these uh, dynamics of settler colonialism and state racism. So cultural production is an important part of this. Civil society is an important part of this. Uh, turning to the legal system, however imbalanced it may be, through groups like Adala and others are certainly a part of this. But there are also interesting dynamics that I think would be interesting to think about in terms of how Palestinian civil society engages with what they know to be an inherently uh, um, racist state structure. So for example, with that rise of homicides that I mentioned earlier, there's an interesting discussion that's happening among 48 Palestinians um, between those who want to see greater police involvement in terms of patrolling, policing, arresting um, uh, perpetrators of violence, gangs, drugs, et cetera. And then others who say, sort of like what we're hearing here in the US, who say, no, we don't want more police involvement because the police don't solve the problems for us, they make the problems worse. So we're seeing the rise of, of um, community brokerage between gangs, for example, the declaring of a hood now or a ceasefire between rival gangs in an attempt to solve problems internally, socially within the community without bringing in the uh, state police or the state structures to try to ameliorate or to try to solve problems that are essentially caused by state neglect in the first place. We're also seeing, for example, the rise in particular of women's movements that are aimed at uh, raising awareness about and eradicating gender-based violence inside the Green Line, as well as in Palestinian communities more broadly. We see this most noticeably with the Tala'at movement. And again, these are grassroots organizations that seek to, um, uh, that seek to solve and seek to help the Palestinian community without resorting to state structures and state agencies that are themselves part of the problem. And so I think that when we think about the parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement here, the police abolition movement here, and other grassroots organizations that are really starting to take shape or starting to gain awareness, I would say, uh, particularly over the last few months, I think it's important to also recognize that there are Palestinians in the Green Line who are also very keenly aware of these movements and are recognizing the dynamics between them. And this recognition that Palestinians have, particularly of the Black Freedom Movement, um, goes, goes far back. And so since I'm a historian, I can't resist uh, talking a little bit about the past. And so I want to uh, share with you an essay that was written or part of an essay that was written by Mahmoud Darwish. So we know Mahmoud Darwish is a Palestinian poet, uh, but in his early years, he was also an essayist and a columnist. He wrote for the um, Israeli Communist Party Arabic newspaper Al-Ittihad. And in 1966, he wrote a pair of columns. The first is called A Letter to a Negro, and the second is called Second Letter to a Negro. In them, he expressed his sense of connection with Black Americans, and in particular with the Black American writer James Baldwin. And so he wrote in one of his essays, quote, when I read the book by our gifted writer, James Baldwin, nobody knows my name. I felt as if James is writing about me personally, about the Negroes, he puts in quotes, Negroes in Israel, with only slight adjustments to the details of the picture. 
When he wrote about love, he was narrating my love. And when he wrote about hate, he reflected my hate. So this passage not only illustrates Darwish's awareness of black oppression in the United States, but it also highlights the specific connections that he made between Baldwin's analytical writings on race and his own experience as a minoritized citizen of Israel. In my own research, I find, I, I've argued that Darwish was arguably the first Palestinian to connect analytical conceptions of race to his own personal experiences as a citizen of Israel. Though in doing so, he was building upon a longer history of Palestinian intellectual and discursive engagement with the black freedom struggle, which I'd be happy to talk about later in the Q&A if you're interested. The last thing I'll talk about, because um, I do want to make sure we get to the Q&A, um, is to return to the idea of surveillance. I mentioned surveillance um, in the story of Da'at Saadi, but I think we can also think about, I think we should think about surveillance much more broadly than a police officer following a citizen around. In particular, thinking about cybersecurity, uh, AI and uh, artificial intelligence surveillance, um, and other types of technical surveillance, which the Israeli government is now using to uh, shore up its economy and its reputation by exporting cyber surveillance and other forms of surveillance technologies to buyers around the world. And so as we see the rise of resistance, whether here in the United States or in Palestine or elsewhere around the world, as we see a rise in resistance, we're going to also see a rise in surveillance and repression. I think that's you know, not surprising for anyone to, to anticipate. And so when we also think about the United States and Israel and the, and the governments and the parallels between them historically, I think it behooves us to also look to it in the future and think about how we can also resist these um, economic and technological uh, partnerships that are also likely to emerge that will seek to continue to repress uh, resistance and uh, movements towards freedom. And there's a great uh, article that just came out this week by uh, Rafif Ziada and uh, Ria Asana on, on this issue um, on uh, Navara Media. So I would encourage you to check that out. And so uh, I'm going to stop here and just um, invite all of us to think about some of the ways in which these parallels play out both here in the United States and in Palestine more broadly. Um, and so I'll wrap it up there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maha. Um, Thank you all for your very rich pre uh, presentations. I think given the time, I'm probably gonna move pretty quickly to Q&A, but I actually have one question I, I wanted to pose and maybe we can like not answer it at, at huge length, but it's the comparative question. And it follows well upon, I think Maha, in particular your talk and, and your use, you know, talking about what you refer to as minoritized um, citizens of Israel, right? So, and this is genuinely, it's not loaded, it's a genuine question. I mean, when one thinks about sort of the contemporary racial states, right, of Israel um, and the US, one obvious difference is that Israel is explicitly the state, a Jewish state. It's ex and, and it's a Jewish state, not just in practice, but in law, the Jewish nation state law, but even from its constitution. Whereas the US state is not legally or explicitly a white state. 
And I'm asking that just in terms, and this obviously has implications for citizens, Palestinian citizens of the state, much more than for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank under other forms of Israeli rule. But I'm wondering how each, how not necessarily each of you, but how you guys might think about that in terms of what difference it might make. And I think about what difference it might make in terms of how one imagines a struggle or resistance, what one is fighting against, right? In one, in one instance, a state that in no way claims to be a state of its citizens, right? And in one case in which, at least under the law, that is the claim. Um, and in that way, obviously, it, it harkens back to apartheid in a very particular way. So I just want to put that on the table because I think in terms of comparison, ra comparing racialization, that's a, a significant, um, at least apparent distinction. I don't know who wants to give that a shot. No one. <laughs> I'll take a, a brief shot at it. I think one of the one of the consequences. I think you're absolutely right. First of all, in terms of understanding, one is being very explicitly an ethnic nation state, and one as being ostensibly more civic, in theory, equitable nation state. Is that the asks are different in some ways because one it and it can be. I don't know which is easier and which is harder. On the one hand, I would say because Palestinians really need to challenge and have been challenging the very foundation of Israel, the Zionist ideology, as the very foundation of the Israeli state, it poses both a larger threat to the dominant Jewish Israelis in that we, you know, we're calling for the dismantlement of the fundamental underpinnings of the state. On the other hand, as, we're, as we've seen this past week with Peter Beinart's essay and others who are sort of slowly starting to come around, there is this growing recognition that, hey, you can't have a democracy that's based on privileging one particular ethnicity. And so in that sense, I think that it's a bit clear the ways in which um, racialized forms of oppression manifest when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians. In the US, it's a bit more slippery. And I think it's one of the reasons why um, activists here in the US have had, I think, um, a challenging time getting a majority of Americans to support like all of the asks because there is still this, you know, land of the free, home of the brave uh, um, ideal in the minds of many people. And so getting them to even recognize the ways in which the state was built on racialized oppression that um, Dr. Fernandez laid out so beautifully and eloquently, I think is it's just it's harder for people to conceptualize. But saying, hey, a Jewish nation state, what happens to the non-Jews? I think it's a little bit more um, it's easier to wrap one's mind around it. And so I don't know what that means, what the implications are in terms of the political project. But I think there are um, there are sort of consequences for that for that key distinction. I think we really need to take the whole discussion of Israel as Jewish state, uh, not at face value, but rather ensure that uh, Jewishness is not equal to Zionism. This is extremely important. And recognizing the very nature of Zionism as a settler colonial racialized uh, movement uh, will take us, uh, I think, away from the religious part of uh, Zionism. As I was trying to say in my talk, uh, Jewishness was used as a pretext. 
Yes, it was able to convince the world, but which world? It was largely the Western world, the very same European world that you know, did the Holocaust, were the ones to, as a form of repentance, maybe, uh, accept Israel as Jewish state. But that was not you know, the fault of Palestinians. That was not the fault of other African and Asian and Arab nations, all of whom voted in 1975 that Zionism is a form of racism. And the vote, as we all know, <clears throat> stuck there until 1991, when pressure by both Israel and the US were placed on the UN to rescind this, you know, uh, this declaration, and it was rescinded as a result. So since actually then, since 67, I would say, that the power of imperialism was able to dictate itself and its rule all over the world and literally agree or disagree with how a nation or a state can define itself. Hence, accepting Israel as a Jewish state. Hence, Trump, you know, uh, 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 actually trumping the whole issue of, you know, a Jewish state and its right to expand more and more and to occupy more, uh, expand on Palestinian lands. So the point is, um, we need a clear identification of what is Jew uh, Jewishness or Judaism that is used by Zionism and for what purpose. And when we do that, we stop thinking of Israel as a Jewish state. And the we need to convince also the Europeans particularly, North Americans, that no, it is not. Not because, you know, uh, 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 anything other than the fact that it is a settler state that is still, you know, sitting on, if you want, the necks of indigenous uh, uh, Palestinians, both uh, in, you know, uh, in, in uh, so-called Israel, as well as in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. If you look at the population, both Jews and Palestinians, they're almost the same number. If you take Palestinians, 48, West Bank, Gaza, and the refugees, they're almost the same. Plus, not only that, there are more, I mean, a growing, uh, I think, force of uh, both Jews and non-Jews and Africans and, you know, all kinds of people are coming more to the realization about the true essence of this Israel, okay, that it is not for Jews, it is not, you know, for um, uh, Jewishness, and it is not a Jewish state, but rather settler colonial and needs to be fought. Okay, I mean, I mean, we should open this up, I, I, but I, I just want to say, I don't think that one has to accept the equation of Zionism and Jewishness to recognize that formally and institutionally, that is the legal structure of the state, and it has profound consequences for even the kinds of rights one can demand. Right. Okay. I think this might, uh, Johanna, do you want to say something quickly before I open yeah, it up? I want us to open it up uh, to others, but uh, I think it's shocking, um, regardless of how the Zionist project deploys Jewishness, it's shocking that in the 21st century, there's a state that calls itself that and that is organized around the exclusion and the evisceration of people of that um, 
indigenous to those lands. I mean, in many ways, we should talk a lot more about that um, and expose it and the problems with that in, um, in a different world, right? We're not, uh, so, uh, but however, you know, I was rereading this essay that I wrote a while ago. When you really read um, the, the kind of militarized command society that Israel has built, and the ways in which it um, oppresses uh, Palestinian Israelis, um, but the ways in which uh, Palestinians who live outside of 48 are, are dispensable. What that means, I think, is that the possibility of genocide is there, and we saw it in, we saw it, it looked like, concentration camps in many places. And so what this state and its ramification tells us is that there is a profound need for an international movement um, to stand in solidarity uh, with people who, who are under the foot of um, a militarized state that's supported by the most powerful country in the world, at least militarily. So the, the international character of the struggle is what I think this raises uh, when you read um, the horrors of it. Thank you. Um, that makes a perfect transition for a question I want to start with, which is most explicitly directed to uh, Dr. Nassar, but obviously please um, join in. Please say more about the engagement between black activism in the US and Palestinian political engagement. This important alliance seems to be the case now in Black Lives Matters protests. I think that that's a really nice transition to think about what an international movement is and what these solidarity. Can you repeat that? Repeat that. I'm sorry. Uh, say more about the engagement between Black activism in the U.S. and Palestinian political engagement. This important alliance seems to be the case now in Black Lives Matters protests, which of course has been going on since. The, I mean, one of the famous things of from Ferguson to Gaza, right, in the summer of uh, 2008, I think. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I would say that the history of um, Black activist engagement with the Palestinians is very much tied to uh, Black internationalism and the history of Black radical tradition. So we know, for example, that Malcolm X went to uh, and visited the Gaza Strip when it was under Egyptian control during his Middle East trip in 1964. Um, and that wasn't a coincidence. I mean, so we know from that, just that even that little snippet or that little vignette, that Palestine was recognized on the minds of black internationalists in particular, who had a very strong anti-colonial outlook, um, even prior to the 67 war. Um, after the 67 war, with the rise of um, black power movement, black Panthers, we see a more explicit engagement with the uh, parallels between um, Palestinians, both under primarily the Palestinians who are newly under occupation at that point with uh, Black Americans here in the U.S. Uh, and then that continues over the course of the 70s and 80s um, and really informs, helps inform uh, some of the more internationalist outlooks of the Black Lives Matter movement today. So it has a, a very rich and robust history and I think the undergirding um, impetus around that is the recognition of both the United States and Israel as being settler colonial states 
and the anti-colonial impetus that informs particularly black internationalist um, activists. So that's another reason why I think the settler colonial component that both uh, Dr. Abdo and Dr. Fernandez talked about is really crucial to understanding what is happening in this, um, with regard to that engagement and, that, um, and those solidarities. So that's something to really um, uh, keep in mind. While not losing sight of, I would say, while not losing sight of the fact that Palestinians are also indigenous, um, an indigenous population of Palestine. And so thinking about the ways in which, and this is less of a historical, more of a historiographical comment that I want to mention because I think it's really important. The ways in which we understand the history of the U.S. is often informed either by Black studies or by Indigenous studies. And so we're talking about it in terms either of anti-Blackness or of in terms of settler colonialism. And I think one of the great things that, again, both Dr. Abdo and Dr. Fernandez talked about are the ways in which those things are intertwined. And so thinking more, more broadly in terms of how we understand the entwinement of settler colonialism, um, uh, elimination of the natives with slave enslavement and anti-blackness, I think is really important for us to move forward. It's something that earlier um, radical and um, anti-colonial activists recognized. And so it's something that I think we wanna also bring up and, and draw on and build on as we move forward in our analysis and also in our mobilizations. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna make one quick comment and then I'm gonna pass a question specifically Johanna just for time. It's interesting, I mean, one of the things I think just to put on the table is one of the struggles also around the argument about indigenousness, right, in Palestine is that one of the distinctions of this settler nation is the claim to indigeneity, right, that it has appropriated. And there is of course more and more of that kind of writing and scholarship going on as a contestation of this comparative conversation. So it's worth um, putting that on the table. So I have a question that, um, uh, Johanna, I think is very much for you. Do you think it's important? Someone writes, the Second Amendment takes on a whole new light with your discussion of how settler colonial society in the US deputized white men to enforce dominance, which I agree that was fascinating. Can you tie it to the gun rights movement today? Um, I, I mean, I think it's, obvious when we think about people owning guns we don't think about anyone other than white people <laughs> like it's an inbuilt feature of consciousness in the united states uh what else can you say uh no person of color with a gun whether it's legal or not is going to be given the benefit of the doubt they're going down like the titanic boom um, the same could be said about Palestinians, right? Um, I don't know what more to say. I mean, historically, um, we know that gun laws were changed in California precisely at the moment when the Black Panther Party legally arms itself to um, police the police in Oakland. So immediately, uh, the state, state representatives launch what is known as the Black Panther Law uh, that makes it illegal first to carry a gun in urban centers. So that's something that you might know. Like it's, uh, 
gun ownership in urban centers is like not, it's not a thing. That's because the laws make it so. Because in urban centers, there's always a movement to take the guns out of folks' hands. Um, but um, uh, yeah, unclear. Interestingly enough, even in the South, uh, gun ownership is a thing in, uh, in rural areas. Uh, it's just connected to what you need to do, hunting, etc. And in the South, uh, black people do own guns, although they're not associated with the kinds of people who should own guns. Um, there are stories that I, uh, of a gun ownership um, in the South by black people that have sent white Americans, but also sheriffs running, screaming into the night and, and, and led them to attack black people. But interestingly enough, not Native Americans. So Native Americans do also own guns in the South, but because they are marginal um, to the economy, have been marginal to the economy of the United States historically, the gun ownership of Native Americans who are also a very, very small population, doesn't, um, doesn't inspire uh, this kind of racialized evisceration as it does for Black Americans. I mean, but that's a footnote. It's a complicated uh, situation. That doesn't mean that Native Americans are not uh, targets of the state in other ways. Something that folks don't know is that um, the rate of police killings of Native Americans in the Midwest is higher than that of Black Americans in places like Minneapolis and the Brewer area. Not sure oh. if I answered your question, but. Great, thank you, that was a great answer. So I'm gonna try to get in two more quick questions or not so quick, but we'll try to do it. Before I do that, um, I just wanna say there are various questions in the Q&A about a potential reading list. And I think what we're gonna to try to do is we'll talk afterwards, put together a list for you guys. And then if you, uh, you'll get an email. If you want the list, you can email IPS and, and get it. It might be better than doing it live. Okay, so maybe Nahna, maybe you can start with this. Do the speakers think there are any downsides to drawing analogies between the two cases? Is it liable to mislead us in certain ways, especially when it comes to the respective liberation struggles, keeping in mind that the parallels are clearest between first, the occupied territories and the early history of the US, and second, 48 Israel minus the occupied territories and the contemporary US. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I understood the, the last part. Okay. So yeah. the basic question is, sorry. No, the last part, basically. The basic question is whether there are any disadvantages, uh, downsides to drawing analogies between the two cases. And I think the, the points one and two were, if you were gonna make a comparison, maybe the best comparison is either between the occupied territories today and the early history of the US, or uh, 48 Israel today and the US, but minus the occupied territories. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, it seems that the uh, question itself is not actually strange from um, many theories and um, uh, authors, especially among Israeli left, who wanted to see settler colonialism, for example, as relevant only to the West Bank and Gaza Strip and not relevant to Palestine 1948. 
among the, also the authors and the writings <coughs> is that, okay, this was in the past. Why are we dwelling on it right now? Sorry. I disagree that enslavement, slavery, racialization, and racism uh, is gone. I disagree that it is historical as in the past. Yes, it is historical, but it's a process. It began as a process and, and will always continue as long as the system itself is the same and has not changed. The system of settler colonialism has not changed. Hence, the ramifications of it in terms of race and racialization are not going to change. Um, I think it's always uh, just useful and more than useful, especially for solidarity movements and for working together in tandem in terms of you know, resisting uh, these uh, moves is to bring Palestinians as a whole, both in 48, because 48, as you know, uh, Johanna was trying to say, uh, also experienced and continue to experience a total deprivation total deprivation of their culture, of their history, of, you know, of everything, that their erasure as a people is very much there. It's different kind than what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza, but nonetheless, it is, you know, uh, policies of race and racialization that affects, you know, all of the Palestinians. I mean, we did not even touch the Palestinians in the refugee camps uh, who have been, you know, awaiting their right to see their homes and lands that are still there and that they can still see them in social media and you know, in other places. We have forgotten these 5 million or more Palestinians. We did not even touch them. So all of these Palestinians who are the victim of Israel as a state, Israel as a settler colonial state, I think need to be brought into the question. So no, I disagree with, you know, with the uh, attempt at, dividing or historicizing in the sense of history as a past thing. History is with us and history is the factor or the force that shows us what's to be done. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the question of whether you want to divide up historical eras is one. I, I don't think the question implied that there wasn't an erasure inside the green line. I think that analogy was more, is it more parallel to the form of racialization of let's say black and indigenous citizens in the US today. I'm just saying, does anybody else, I don't think we're gonna to get to another question. Um, does anybody else wanna say any final words in response to that or anything else before? Yeah, I can, you, can you repeat again? Cause I'm a little confused by, by what you just said right now. Well, I don't think the implication of number two was if you were gonna draw a parallel, it, it seems the most obvious parallels are between 48 Israel today and contemporary US in terms of racialization in, in other words, I think that means that the form of racialization and of violence to which Palestinians inside the Green Line, as distinct from in West Bank and Gaza, let alone refugees, are subjected to, is more similar to the U.S. today than would be the territories in the West Bank and Gaza and the U.S. today. That's my reading. Okay. I, I mean, I think we can parse out, like, the differences and... Uh, and I actually do some of that in this article I wrote. There are differences and similarities, but I think there is power in comparison. 
let me give you an example. There's power in comparison because comparison helps you understand things more deeply. Um, and its structures and root causes. Um, let me give you an example. There are people in the United States among us, Black Americans, Latinos, Indigenous people, who believe that prisons are good and incarceration is needed, as our police, as uh, Maha Nassar just uh, mentioned, that that was in the very important conversation, that there are Palestinians uh, in 48 who want safety. What is fascinating for <clears throat> this study of Palestine 48 or Gaza or the West Bank is that when you look at incarceration in that region, it just puts it all into perspective. What is incarceration about? It's about social control. It has always been about social control. And when one in five Palestinians are imprisoned, and 800,000 political prisoners have been tortured uh, and imprisoned since uh, 1967, that point all of a sudden becomes crystal clear. So it's important for us here to understand, okay, what's, what's the object of this? And why do some populations, why must some populations be um, imprisoned and killed uh, by the police and not others. Because if you do not meet the human needs of certain people to land, to jobs, to culture, they're gonna rebel. Um, and you're gonna have to do away with them somehow. And, but also that, that, that lack of land and employment and culture that, that the state fails to provide is also going to provide, uh, create problems, epic problems, that the state is going to always, always respond to um, with, uh, with the iron fist of the state. So finally, um, I didn't mention this, but I wanted to. Uh, the United States in the 19th century formed the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs. I went, when, I, when we went over there, we were in um, uh, the Bedouin, a Bedouin village. We learned that Israel has created the Bureau of Dealing with these Palestinian Bedouins that controls their schools, that displaces them from their lands. The same thing. I mean, I'm more interested in those, uh, those similarities, which actually help us understand that there is a common project here. And if we don't see it, we're kind of, you know, uh, what is it called? When in, denial is not just the river in Egypt. Um, and I'll just end with, with Baldwin, who's, who, whose quote is brilliant. History, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read. And it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspir aspirations, not to mention the structures of our system.
Thank you. Um, I do think ending on thinking about the virtue of comparison that both Nehna and Johanna have addressed is really important because of course comparison, comparative does not mean one is creating isomorphisms. It is the question of saying, what do we learn through these? Um, Maha, do you want to make any final comments before I Can we just add one, uh, yeah. one word actually for uh, uh, Johanna, that, that your discovery of the Bureau for uh, Bedouin Affairs um, uh, is true, except that Israel has always had uh, the Bureau of Arab Affairs. We Palestinians inside Israel have been um, going to education and healthcare, everything in our curriculum, everything in our lives has been dictated by a special bureau. We have exactly the same thing. We have here Ministry of Indigenous Affairs in Canada. And that is exactly the same kind of as the Ministry of Arab Affairs in Israel. And this is the kind of exclusion I was talking about. And this is very much parallel to you know what we have elsewhere in terms of race and racialization. Thank you. Um, <coughs> Just to wrap it up and sort of think about where we go from here, I think that um, the Baldwin quote is brilliant because the history isn't just about the past, but it's our present and our future. Where do we go from here? And so thinking about the ways in which historical solidarities can be translated into contemporary alliances and forward-thinking ways in which we can dismantle the structures that oppress us all across borders and around the world, I think has to be front and center in any liberation movement, whether here in the United States or in Palestine or elsewhere. So I would just encourage everyone um, to read the uh, bibliography that we will be collect, uh, uh, collecting and amassing and sending out. Um, and just thinking about this in terms of comparison, not as sameness, but in terms of the um, understanding the underlying structures so that we aren't um, playing that game, you know, where the thing sticks up in you, whack-a-mole, right? Where you have to punch and it keeps sticking up in different places so that we need to have a comprehensive solution because these are very um, comprehensive problems that we face. Uh, thank you. And just to add one final comment on that, which I think is also a thing that to think about critically as scholars and not just activists is, of course, as Nahna pointed out, for a long time, the sort of argument by Israeli historians who were Zionist historians was that Israel was an exception, right? It was an exception. But then by the 1980s, 90s, it became, you kind of open the archives and then it becomes, no, no, it's not an exception. Every other state has done this. So there's this very complex question when you do comparative, and I'm all for the comparative, but that in some ways the turn in Israel has been to do the comparative as a way of normalizing, right? As if the contemporary liberal Euro-American states are just liberal democratic states without problems. So the question of comparison and exceptionalism is very complex in the context of Israel and has really taken this whole turn of, you know, the classic example being Benny Morris, yeah, 48, but I would have done it all over again. Every nation state was founded that way. So how one continues to disrupt that conversation, which is a global problem, I think is really important to keep in mind. Okay, on that note, I want to thank our speakers uh, who did a wonderful job in a rather odd forum that we're all getting shockingly used to, I guess, because it will be our reality for a while. Um, it certainly has the advantage of being able to reach people around the globe. Um, so thank you all for your wonderful contributions. Thank you everybody who, who attended. I'm sorry there were so many rich questions that we just 
could not get to, but we will put a reading list together for anybody who wants it. And uh, stay tuned, maybe we'll do another version at some point. Thank you again. And of course, thank you to the IPS um, and uh, for organizing this. They really carried the load, not the CPS at Columbia. Thank you very much and goodbye, everyone. Have a nice day or evening. Thank you all and goodbye. Thank you.